chapter of his well-known book, Mere Christianity, with the following words. There is one vice which no person in the world is free, which everyone in the world loathes when we see it in someone else, and of which hardly anyone except Christians ever imagine they are guilty themselves. I've heard people admit, Lewis goes on to say, that they are bad-tempered, that they cannot keep their heads around girls or drink or even that they are cowards. I do not think I have ever heard anyone who is not a Christian accuse himself of this vice. And at the same time, I have very seldom met anyone who is not a Christian who showed the slightest mercy to it in others. There is no fault which makes a person more unpopular and no fault which we may be more unconscious of in ourselves. And the more we have it in ourselves, the more we dislike it in others. The vice I'm talking about is pride or self-conceit. If C.S. Lewis is right, and 54 years of living and 21 years of pastoral ministry suggest that my conclusion is that he is right, then there is nobody sitting here this morning, myself included, that is without the need of God's grace to deal with this one vice that Lewis says inflicts all of humanity. The problem with pride is that like its author, Satan himself, it can so easily hide behind a mask. How often this vice hides behind many different masks. Some have the veneer of brokenness, some have the veneer of service, some even have the veneer of obedience, some even false humility. How often it gets masked behind these veneers. As such, apart from the most obvious expressions of vanity, it's impossible for us, apart from the Spirit of God, to truly plumb the depths of this vice. We need God's help. We need God's grace if we are to enter into true communion with God. Today we are coming to something of a pause in our journey through the book of Genesis. We've spent the last two and a half months in the first uh, 11 chapters of Genesis. This morning we're looking at Genesis 10 and 11. And we're going to have something of a pause. I say we're likely to have something of a pause. As I got to the end of chapter 11 this week, I started reflecting, we can't really leave it here, can we? We can't leave it longing and hanging without hearing the call of Abraham. So I think next week we might dip into chapter 12 as well. The trouble is if we dip into chapter 12, then we've got to go into 13 and 14. And where do we end? Verse 50. But we'll cross that bridge when we get to it. Let's pause for prayer and ask for God's help this morning as we unpack Genesis 10 and 11. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you and praise you for who you are. Your love, Lord, reaches to the heavens. Your faithfulness to the skies. Your righteousness is like the highest mountains. Your justice like the great deep. And I want to ask you now that you would humble our proud hearts that you would strengthen our timid hearts, that you would heal our broken hearts, that we might see Jesus. Holy Spirit, I ask that even now you would do that surgical work 
that only you can do of applying the truth of your word to our hearts today. This we ask in Jesus' name and for his glory. Amen. So today as we explore the terrain of Genesis 10 and 11, we find that they begin and they end with genealogies, beautifully read, I might say. They begin and end with genealogies, and they begin and end with an account of fathers who have three sons. Now, I had a certain affinity when I came to that this week. In fact, I can remember when our our last born was uh, emerged into this world, and we were reflecting on names, and we were going, Samuel Peter Japheth. (laughs) Samuel Peter Japheth, it's got a certain ring to it. But we ended on Michael, and I'm pretty happy we did. So chapter 10 begins with an account of Noah's three sons, and then chapter 11 ends with an account of three sons. And we're going to find the significance of that in a moment. But turn with me, if you haven't already, to Genesis 10, and I'm reading from verse 1. This is the account of Shem, Ham, and Japheth, Noah's sons, who themselves had sons after the flood. The sons of Japheth, Gomer, Magog, and Madai, Javan, Tubal, Meshech, and Terez. The sons of Gomer, Ashnakaz, Rephath, and Togomar. And on we go into the genealogy. Now there's a lot of names that follow in chapter 10 and 11, 70 to be precise. And the author is very deliberate in relaying those 70 names for us. And while these names represent actual descendants of Noah, they come to represent regions and places and nations. And so we've heard of places such as Tarshish, Babylon, Philistine, and Egypt. But there's one name that takes prominence in these two chapters. We were introduced to him last week in chapter 9, and it's Noah's son called Shem. Shem takes prominence in these two chapters. Shem, literally meaning name. And when we get to chapter 11, we're going to see the significance of that. The author first deals with Japheth and Ham as if to deal with the least significant of these three sons. So he begins with Japheth. The descendants of Japheth basically are those who spread west. And so we find and go through Uh, these names, and in verse 5, notice that the sons of Javan are maritime people. So these are people of the sea. And so they move from the land, they move out in the ships. The author makes it clear to us. People who travel by sea. Notice the mention of Tarshish. Where does that name come later in Scripture? We find that is the land that Jonah heads towards. He was supposed to go to Nineveh. Tarshish is where he ends up. The author goes on to describe the descendants of Ham, descendants basically who travel south. And so we encounter Cush, we encounter Egypt, and importantly Canaan, who we were reminded of last week fell under the curse of gods. We also hear of Babylon, of Nineveh, another destination of Jonah. We hear of Sodom and Gomorrah. Interesting that these two towns fall under the lineage of Canaan, the one who was under God's curse. And in his family line, we also hear of Nimrod, who is described three times as a mighty warrior, a mighty hunter. Nimrod is this 
mighty hunter, the author keeps reminding us, a man of strength. And this might, the author advises us, was used to establish the city of Babylon. Tuck that information away. The next time you're reading Revelation, jump back into here as you encounter Babylon in the book of Revelation. Then the author describes Shem. Chapter 10 concludes with the account of the sons of Shem. Shem, of course, is the title Semitic people gain their their name from. To be anti-Semitic is to be opposed from anybody in the line of Shem. And so this one who is called Shem, the named one, the named one, where does his name come from? His name comes from Yahweh, none other than God himself. And so chapter 10 verse 32 concludes with these words, these are the clans of Noah's sons, According to their lines of descent within the nations, from these the nations spread out over the earth after the flood. So if chapter 10 describes this multiplication, this spread of the peoples of gods, the clans and the nations across the earth, when we come to chapter 11, it describes the reverse of God's narrowing, of his focusing in on a people group, down through Shem, down to one person, the narrowing comes to the person of Abram. And so in chapter 10, we have this widening, this spreading, this scattering, if you like, and then at the end of chapter 11, there is a narrowing down to one person. But before that, before that, we come to the troubling chapter of the beginning of chapter 11. I wonder if any of you has traveled to Dubai and have seen that massive tower in Dubai. Has anybody seen the Burj Khalifa, been to Dubai? It's a phenomenal, phenomenal tower, 800 meters tall. I can remember going there in 2011. We were on our way to Africa, and we had a few days in Dubai. And I remember thinking, this is such a soulless city. And I remember saying to my family 10 years ago, I wonder what's going to happen when the oil money runs out in this region. This is before all of the, the last 10 years and the stepping back from fossil fuel. But this Burj Khalifa stands like a monument to man's ingenuity. It is something to behold. It is enormous. Listen to these words here at the beginning of chapter 11. Now, the whole world had one language and common speech. As people moved eastward, they found a plain in Shinar and settled there. And they said to each other, come, let's make bricks and bake them thoroughly. They used brick instead of stone and mortar, stone and tar for mortar. And then they said, come, let us build ourselves a city with a tower that reaches to the heavens so that we may make a name for ourselves. Otherwise, we will be scattered over the face of the whole earth. It's not just Dubai that make towers, is it? There's something about the human hearts. We build towers. Go to, go to Auckland and you'll see the tower, the sky tower. Go to Sydney, you'll see the tower, Sydney tower. There's something in the human heart that says we want to build a tower. We want to make a name for ourselves. It's been going on for generations and eons. Last week, Tim reminded us of the persistence of sin. Three weeks ago, Zishan reminded us of the solemnity of judgment. Both are evident in these first verses 
in chapter 11, these first few verses of chapter 11. Now, the structure of these verses is very, very deliberate. The author is very deliberate in how he has shaped these first nine verses in chapter 11. And so there is a mirroring going on between verse 1 and verse 9. In verse 9, we, in verse 1, we read about the common language. In verse 9, we read about the confused language. In verse 2, we read about the spreading. And in verse 8, we read about the scattering. In verse 3, there is the building of the tower with impermanent materials, bricks they're using. These are not going to last, the author's reminding us. And then in verse 8, the building stops. So the author has got this incredible imagery going on, and what he's wanting us to do is to focus down on the center verse. These first nine verses, the author is wanting us to focus down on the critical verse in verse 5, and it reads the following, but the Lord came down to see the city that the tower the people were building. That's where the author's wanting us to draw our gaze. The Lord has come down. The people are building a tower. They want to make a name for themselves. And so the Lord comes down. He comes into our midst. He comes to see what's going on. Why does God need to come down? Well, he needs to come down because humanity is doing what humanity started doing back in the garden. Remember all those weeks back when we find humanity wanting to live their life on their terms apart from their creator. They're wanting here to build a tower and make a name for themselves, quite separate from their creator gods. And so God must come down. God comes down and meets them. He finds them in their pride. Not only is their pride on display here, but also in verse 4 alludes and gives a hint of their fear, the fear that they're going to be scattered. It's a toxic combination, this pride and fear. God is no longer at the center of this people. At the center is now this man-made structure that was never going to hold them together. It was never going to hold them together, and God's judgment falls on them, confuses their language, scatters them far and wide, and this act of fragmentation and confusion is played out down through the generations. It's happening today. If there was one thing that I would describe our age that we're living in, it's confusion, and if it's a second thing I would describe, it's fragmentation. This has been going on since Genesis 11. God is no longer at the center of these people. In their pride, they are making a name for themselves, and God comes down. God comes into their midst. But the author reminds us that God's plan will never be thwarted. God's purposes will never be thwarted. And so he records for us the account of Shem. Remember I said that Shem is the focus of the author here. This is the lineage through which God's redemptive plan will be worked out. And so chapter 10, uh, verse 10 in chapter 11, we read, this is the account of Shem's family line. Two years after the flood, when Shem was a hundred years old, he became the father of Aphaxad. And after he became the father of Aphaxad, Shem lived 500 years and had other sons and daughters. And down through the generations, the chapter goes. Until we come into verse 27, this is the account of Terah's family line. 
Terah became the father of Abram, Nahor, and Haran. And Haran became the father of Lot. And while his father Terah was still alive, Haran died in the era of Chaldeans. And in the land of his birth, Abram and Nahor both married. The name of Abram's wife was Sarai, and the name of Nahor's wife was Milcah. And she was the daughter of Haran and the father of both Milcah and Ishkah. Now Sarai was childless because she was not able to conceive. Terah took his son Abram, his grandson Lot, son of Haran, and his daughter-in-law Sarai, the wife of his son Abram. And together they set out from Ur of the Chaldeans to go to Canaan. But when they came to Haran, they settled there. Terah lived 205 years, and he died in Haran. God's redemptive plan will not be thwarted. God's redemptive plan will not be thwarted, despite what we do, despite our urge to build a tower, despite our urge to make a name for ourselves. God's redemptive plan will not be thwarted, despite the pride and the vanity that's being described at the beginning of chapter 11. Some of you may be familiar with John Bunyan's classic Pilgrim's Progress. And if you are familiar with it, you will know well the chapter that talks about Vanity Fair. If you haven't read it, I want to encourage you over the next 12 months, make it something on your reading list. And so we find as Bunyan records of Christian and Faithful, these two characters walking on their journey to the celestial city. And they come to the city that is vanity. Bunyan records, This is no newly begun business, but a thing of ancient standing. I will show you the original of it. Almost 5,000 years ago, there were pilgrims walking to the celestial city. And as these two honest persons are, and Beelzebub and Apollyon and Legion with their companions, seeing that the path of the pilgrims lay through this town of vanity, set up a fear, a fear where they would see all sorts of vanity, and they should last all year long. Therefore, at this fear are all such things, sold as houses, lands, trades, places, honors, preferments, titles, countries, kingdoms, lusts, pleasures, and delights of all sorts, as wives, husbands, children, masters, servants, lives, blood, bodies, souls, silver, gold, pearls, precious stones, and whatnot. At this fair, there are all times to be seen juggling, cheats, games, plays, fools, apes, knaves, rogues, that of every kind. Christian and faithful find themselves in this fair, vanity fair. Church, I want to plead with you this morning. This is the age that we live in, the world that we live in. It's a world of vanity. It's a world of entertainments. Don't, don't be enticed by the vanity of the fear that is an offer. Bunyan goes on to say, Now Christian and faithful, as I said, must go through this fear. Well, so they did. But as they entered into the fear, all the people were moved in the town itself, as it were, in a hubbub about them. And that for several reasons, for their garments were very different from the kind sold in the fair. Their speech was also strange, since they spoke the language of Canaan. But most of all, the pilgrims took no interest in the goods offered for sale. They would not even look at them. 
When they were called upon to buy, they would put their fingers in their ears and cry, turn away mine eyes from beholding vanity and look upward, signifying that their trade and traffic was in heaven. And one trader mockingly said to them, what will you buy? But they looking gravely upon him said, we buy truth. And at that the pilgrims were taunted and mocked and some even threatened to strike them. What will we buy? And their response was, we buy truth. What a great response when we find ourselves in the midst of vanity fear and you're asked, what will you take of these vanities? What will you buy? And you say, we buy truth. Not just truth about the world around us, not just truth about the kingdom, but truth about ourselves. We buy truth. Is that your declaration to the world this morning? Are you so different from the world of vanity fear that people mock and threaten you, or is your life compromised? Are you actually actively trying to blend in with this world? Or is your cry, we buy truth? We buy truth. The world says to make a name for yourself. The Lord of life says, I have given you my name. The world says, make a name for yourself. And the Lord of life says, I have given you my name. Receive it. Receive it by truth. Three things in this chapter 11 of Genesis which can thwart us from entering into the purpose of God. Sin, affliction, and comfort. The first is the most obvious, and I've labored that point the vice of vanity, making a name for ourselves. That can thwart us from entering into the purpose of God. But notice also the affliction Sarai is suffering from. She is unable to conceive, and yet God's purposes will not be thwarted. Notice also that terror does not make his way to Canaan. He settles in Haran. He finds the place of Haran a comfortable place, and he settles there. He never makes it to Canaan. Pride, affliction, and comfort can all thwart us from entering into the purpose of God, but God's purposes will never be stopped. I've said on many times before that we either humble ourselves before our Creator God or He will humble us. We either humble ourselves before our Creator God or He will humble us. Jesus shows us what true humility looks like. Who being the very nature God did not consider equality with God something to be used to his own advantage. Rather, he made himself nothing. By taking the very nature of a servant, being made in human likeness, and being found in appearance as a man, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to death, even death on a cross. In that obedience and humility, God exalts him and he will do the same for us as we enter into Christ's humility. As we lay down our foolish vanity of making a name for ourselves, of comparing ourselves to others, of judging others around us as we enter into Christ's humility. Paul says, have the same. In your relationships with one another, have the mindset of Christ Jesus. Church, the road of discipleship is this road of humility. It's entering into the walk of Christ. 
that's walking the way of the cross. The road of discipleship is a lifelong journey of taking ourselves off the throne and putting the one who belongs on the throne, none other than Christ, our King. It's the road of turning away from the world, of turning away from the vanities of our own heart and enthroning Christ Jesus and saying, we buy truth, truth about the kingdom, truth about the world, truth about our own heart. It's about saying, we buy truth, the truth that is found in Christ and Christ alone. But this heart, this heart is deceitful. My heart is deceitful. And it lures me into the temptation of saying, you can make a name for yourself. You can build a tower. And God says to me, that's the way of death. And he calls me to come and humble myself. I read in Luke chapter 15 of this incredible encounter of two sons. They begin the story that Jesus describes, full of pride. The younger brother is full of pride. He says, I want my inheritance now. And he takes the inheritance of his father. He goes off into a, a far country and he squanders the inheritance in wild living, making a name for himself until finally he comes to his senses and he says, Father, I have sinned against heaven and against you. And he turns back in humility and repentance and he comes back and he finds a father waiting for him with his arms out wide and he says, my son has come home. He's humbled himself. And the father bestows sonship back on his humble son. But the older brother's standing there watching what's going on. And in his pride, he says, why is this happening to my younger brother? Comparing himself with his younger brother. Why is this happening? I never disobeyed a word you told me, he says, in his anger. And the older brother remains outside of the celebration because the pride in his heart because of the pride in his heart. We buy truth. We buy truth about the kingdom. We buy truth about the world. And we own the truth about our hearts. Is that your testimony this morning? Your testimony is Christ enthroned in your life? Or are you still setting yourself up as king? Are you still finding yourself comparing yourself with others? Comparing your circumstances? Wanting more, wanting more. And Christ would say, there is nothing more that you need. As we've sung already this morning, there is nothing more than my life revealed in yours. I want to teach you two prayers this morning to help you on the journey of humility. Two prayers that you will know I remind you of them. Two prayers from Scripture. The first is the prayer of John the Baptist. Pray it whenever you find yourself enticed by the vanities of your heart and the world. <clears throat> Say, I must decrease, that you, Jesus, must increase. That's the first prayer. I must decrease, that you, Jesus, must increase. And the second prayer, perhaps the most important prayer, you've heard me pray it before and I pray it again. It's the prayer that Jesus prayed in the garden. Not my will be done, but God, your will be done. Not my will, but yours be done. 
pride, affliction, and comfort will hinder you from entering into the purposes of God. But let me conclude by saying today that nothing, nothing in all creation can stop the purposes of God. God, our sovereign, will continue to bring His plan of redemption to fulfillment. The question is, are we a part of that plan? Are you a part of that plan? Is Christ enthroned in your life this morning? Is Christ the King of your life this morning? Let's bow our heads and our hearts in prayer. Lord Jesus, as we sit under your words, as we reflect on those generations all those years ago, we remind ourselves, as you remind ourselves, that we are not so different. We're still building cities. We're still building towers. We're still seeking to make a name for ourselves. Forgive us, Lord. Jesus, as a church, we want to pray collectively. Not our will be done, but yours, Lord Jesus, be done in our life corporately. And I want to pray for my brothers and sisters here this morning, for each and every one of us, as we find ourselves walking the path of this world, as you call us to walk the path of this world. Lord, when people ask, what will we, be, what will we buy? May we have on our lips that we buy truth, and that truth is found in you alone, Lord Jesus, the way, the truth, and the life. And so this morning, by your Spirit, help each and every one of us to take ourselves off the throne and to put you there, Jesus, our rightful King and our Saviour, in whose name we pray. Amen.